Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We are coming to a close in our series in 1 Corinthians, and I do look forward to returning to Genesis once we finish 1 Corinthians. We'll pick Genesis back up in uh, chapter 37, where Tracer will, will start us off on that in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I really look forward to, to seeing uh, the life of Joseph and how God um, worked throughout that situation in his providence to ultimately sustain his people uh, because God is faithful. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 35 to 58, the end of the chapter. Our work is characterized by difficulty, by frustrations, by losses. Haven't you experienced this in your own life, your work life? Think about your job. Don't you face trials in your work? And as soon as you think things are really taking off and going well, something takes place to make you feel like just giving up, throwing in the towel. Frustrations. Even when you're progressing, there will always be frustration. And we know that it, part of it is because of the fall. All of it is because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve in the garden. And there was the curse that was placed upon them that your work now will be filled with difficulty and futility. And really it's true not only of your job, but it's true in other areas of your life as well. Parenting is faced with frustrations and difficulty. Uh, Being good neighbors to others, our work in those areas. Even something as simple as cutting your own lawn, it is filled with frustration and challenges. So do you ever feel like your, your work is meaningless? Like it's... It's worthless, like it's not making a difference. I've felt that way many times in, in various sorts of work that I, uh, I've done. One of them that sticks out to me is roofing. It was fraught with difficulties and challenges. And one of them, one of the roofs in, roofs in particular sticks out in my mind. And uh, it was just had several layers of roof on it. We would take these shovels with prongs on it and we'd rip up the nails and it just seemed like you were going an inch per hour. It, it took forever. The sun was just blazing down on us and we were sweating. And it was at that moment, I think it was later that day or later that week, when it occurred to me that this is kind of what hell is like. <laughs> hell, in my mind, would be kind of like finally getting to the end of doing your job and then you turn around and look at the other side and it's full of shingles again. You haven't ripped off a single shingle. Just doing that for all of eternity. Now I know hell is much, much worse than that. But maybe that's a little taste of, it, of what it's like. Work with futility, complete worthlessness, uselessness, not getting anything accomplished. And last week, uh, Peter preached really in a sense, on the vanity of life in all things if the resurrection is not true. Everything is meaningless if Jesus did not and was not raised from the dead. Our work, our lives, it will all vanish if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And in our passage today, Paul continues on his exposition of the resurrection, but he makes an interesting link there at the end in in verse 58. He links 
the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with the, the, our labors. And it's because of Christ's resurrection that any work, any labor that we do in Christ, in the Lord, we can be guaranteed that it is not futile. It is not worthless. But it's only in Christ. It's only because of His work for us. We'll see more how that comes into play toward the end of our message this morning. But notice that link. Paul links our labors, not just your job, but just our labors in general, with the resurrection. How we can have courage in the face of difficulties. How we can continue working in faith for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it won't be in vain. So Paul continues this defense of the doctrine of the resurrection, and he particularly, in this passage, focuses in on the resurrection body. The resurrection body. So look at our passage together. I'll read it, and then we'll jump into its meaning. Verse 35, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. And another glory of the stars, for stars differs, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our Father, we pray that you would feed us now by your word, that we would understand it, that we would apply it to our hearts, that you, by your spirit, would make it effective in our hearts and minds and lives so that we would live for your glory in light of the resurrection, in light of the victory that Christ has won for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christian hope is not merely forgiveness. It's not merely eternal life somewhere. It's not, it's, it's not even spending eternity with God as uh, spirits. The full Christian hope is the resurrection of the body. Being made whole and being made holy. Having spirit and body reunited to live with God for all eternity as glorified humans. Now the, first, the, the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, some of them, as odd as it might sound, were doubting the resurrection of the dead. Perhaps it's natural to doubt something that we haven't experienced. None of us have experienced resurrection. To doubt something we lack knowledge about. So when I flew to Haiti you know, a few weeks ago, it still kind of baffles me how a plane flies. How does something that big get that high in the air and go that fast? Well, if someone knows kind of odds and ends, it's just science, right? It makes perfect Complete sense. Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. But it can still make it hard for some to conceive a certain thing, not having the experience or knowledge about it. Well, Paul sets out to really convince, in some ways, some of these Corinthians about the truth of the resurrection. Or at least he is attempting to bolster the faith of those who already believed it by arguing against these other Christians. Because sometimes debate is not for the sake of the one you're debating, but for others who are listening in. Have you ever noticed that? And so Paul might be aiming at that. He wants to bolster the faith of these Christians that the resurrection is indeed true. That it's something that Jesus has accomplished in and of himself, and it's something that will take place for everyone who comes to him in faith. And so Paul's argument in this passage, I think, is made up of three main sections. The first section is verses 35 to 41. And here he's simply arguing that the resurrection is reasonable. It's just a reasonable thing to believe in the resurrection. In verses 42 to 49, he describes what the resurrection body is like. He he describes its nature. And in verses 50 to 58... He gives us a picture of when this will take place. So the resurrection body, its reasonableness, its nature, and its realization. Its reasonableness, its nature, and its realization. Those are our three headings for this morning. And Paul's aim is twofold. I think we see his aim in verse 58. His aim is that they would be steadfast in the faith. That they would be immovable in the, in the face of difficulties or trials. And then also that they would always be abounding in the work of the Lord. That knowing Jesus has risen from the dead and knowing this is their inheritance, it would then motivate them to work hard in faith, knowing that their work is not in vain. So let's look first at the reasonableness of the resurrection. Verses 35 to 41. 
the Corinthian objection. They are, it seems, mocking, or at least Paul anticipates kind of a mocking uh, objection by some of these Corinthian Christians. That the resurrection is unreasonable. How messed up is that that Christians, supposedly Christians, professing Christians, are mocking the idea of a physical resurrection? It's completely unreasonable, they said. They couldn't conceive of a resurrection body. They lacked experience and knowledge. They also lacked a, uh, a fuller rev- revelation, which we have today, right? So in response to their objections, we now are the beneficiaries of that. Paul goes into further depth explaining the resurrection, proving the resurrection, arguing for the resurrection. So Paul's response is, how foolish are you to say that it is unreasonable to believe in the resurrection? He argues, I think, that the created order itself gives us the ability to conceive of a resurrection body. The ability to conceive of the fact that we, though we die, we will be resurrected from the dead. He gives a few analogies. So the first analogy is the body of a seed which is planted into the ground. So a seed is planted and figuratively it dies. We know it doesn't really die. The outer shell dies and there's still life within it. But you plant the seed and it appears to die. And then, then what happens? It is transformed into an, enti- an entirely new sort of being and existence. That seed gives birth to perhaps a, a huge pine tree. In John 12, 24, Jesus uses a similar analogy to speak of his own death and the fruit that it would produce. A kernel of wheat has to fall to the ground and die before it is transformed and bears fruit. He also uses this analogy of his followers dying to themselves. So it's kind of the idea in the passage in John that his the followers of Jesus must die themselves to, to their own selfish way of living, to their own selfish way of being, to seeing yourself as king over your own life. You must lay the crown down and bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must die to yourself before you can live and bear fruit. But here the, the analogy seems to be of the physical death of the body giving way to something radically transformed, a new existence, a new mode of existence and being. He also gives the analogy of flesh. There are a variety of flesh in the world. There are humans, there are animals, there are birds. So it's not unreasonable to think of another sort of, of body. He speaks of the variety of bodies and their respective glories of heavenly bodies, of earthly bodies, of the sun, moon, and stars in their respective glories. Each one is different. There's variety in these bodies and in these fleshes. In other words, it's not an altogether unreasonable thing to be able to conceive of a resurrection body. So today, some might question the resurrection in a similar way to the Corinthians. You know, we might think, oh, we have a modern mind now. We're not, you know dumb like they were back then we know better now we know that once somebody dies they just stay dead but really it would have been just as inconceivable then as it is now 
So why is it reasonable to believe in the resurrection? Well, we have the analogies that Paul gives. But don't we also just have kind of an intuitive sense that there's something more than just this life? I suspect even those who are atheists have this nagging suspicion that there is something else to come. That there's a life other than simply just this life. The body is an essential part of who we are. We, we are not those who say that we're just spirits entombed in this physical shell. right? God has created us body and soul. This, is, this body is an essential part of who we are. We are embodied spirits. We are whole beings. Having a body is a part of what it means to be human. So if there's any afterlife at all, it just makes sense that it would be some sort of bodily existence. A glorified body. But further, this question of the resurrection is really, it comes back to a question of the existence of God. It comes back down to the fact, to the question, do you believe that God exists? Because there are really, although we might get the sense there are a lot of atheists, there are really few atheists, right? It's a very small percentage of people who are really atheists. They, they say there's no God at all. Most people in America and throughout the world believe in some sort of God, in some sort of all-powerful creator, right? So if you have an all-powerful creator, if you have a God who can do all things, what would be so unreasonable about believing that he can raise people from the dead? Right? It comes back to the question of God. Does God exist? Well, if you say, yes, God exists, well, then it's a given. It's a no-brainer that the resurrection is at least a reasonable thing to think about. The God who spoke everything into being by his word of power out of nothing. Can he then take something and give it life? Of course he can. It's totally reasonable to believe in the resurrection. What's more difficult to believe in? An omnipotent God, all-powerful God, who can raise people from the dead, or an omnipotent God who can't? Right? He is the all-powerful God. He created something out of nothing, and it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection. But notice also the nature of the resurrection body in verses 42 to 49. Paul rebukes the person who poses the question in the first place, you foolish person. But then he actually gives them an answer. And we've benefited from this in this text. What is the resurrection body like then? What is the nature of this resurrection body? And Paul gives four pairs to show the contrast between our current bodies and the body which is to come. Four pairs which contrast with one another between the earthly body and the glorified resurrected body. First is perishable and imperishable. Our current body is perishable. So this means we have increasing weakness, decay, ultimately resulting in death. So think about the perishable items at the grocery store. Uh, Bananas, right? You always have the best of intention of eating all the bananas you buy. But they sit on the counter for a while and you pass them up for some other junk food. And after a few days, they're all brown and nasty and now you definitely don't want to eat them. We're nothing more than bananas. We are in a state of decay from the moment we are born. We begin the process of dying. If you're anywhere 
in the range of 35 and older, you know this to be true, right? You've experienced this. Somebody asked me on my 30th birthday, birthday how I felt, and I said, I'm sore all over and a little bit taller. That's how I feel. But we, we know this from our own experience that we are breaking down. And the further we age, the more we recognize this. Well, this is what our current body is like. It is perishable, but it will, will be raised imperishable. That doesn't just mean it will will kind of plateau, but rather increasing vitality and strength. One commentator says it is a reversal of decay. And we have a foretaste of this here and now in our own spiritual life, right? Although we were dead, God gave us life in Christ and now he is producing fruit in us. We've been brought from death to life, and now we are growing in holiness. We are growing in Christ-likeness. Somehow, God has reversed the decay of our spiritual lives, and He has given us new life. The second pair is dishonor and glory. Our current body is characterized by dishonor. Not that the physical body is bad. Don't think of it in this sense, that our physical Flesh is bad, but that we have used it as a vehicle for doing evil. We've done harm to ourselves. We have done harm to others through sin. And its result is humiliation before God and man. But the scripture says we will be raised in glory, in splendor and in majesty. Never again. Will our bodies be used for sin or dishonorable purposes? The idea here is radiance. And the same commentator, Anthony Thistleton, says, We have an inkling of this when the face of a lover or loved one becomes radiant with joy in moments of special happiness or tenderness. The last tatters and shreds of sin are no longer present to cloud the sun. This is a picture of the resurrected, glorified body. The third pair is weak and power. Weakness and power. The current body is weak, characterized by our limitations of space and time and energy. One example may be the difficulty you have in remaining spiritually alert in your own personal private times with God or here at the church as someone is leading us in prayer or as I'm preaching or someone's uh, reading scripture there is a tendency there's a weakness right we find ourselves drifting off we find a difficulty in doing what we know we ought to be doing what we know would be good for us we are weak in so many ways this refers to an inability to rightly desire and carry out the will of God so I think it may be uh, somewhat of an example to look at Paul in Romans 7. All right? He finds this law within him that the things he, he wants to do, he desires to do, for some reason he can't bring himself to actually do those things that he knows will bring glory to God and be good for him. We find this at work in ourselves. You know, and even if we did everything perfectly and righteously, we can't. But even if we could, we'd still get worn out and tired. And we would be ineffective in many ways. But we will be raised in power. 
Now, this doesn't mean you'll, you'll be able to lift, you know, a, a semi truck up over your head. It's referring to ability and effectiveness to bring glory to God in your body. Not hampered by the limitations we currently faced, our energy will not be drained. But even more importantly, our ability and our effectiveness to desire and carry out the will of God for our lives. To obey him. In fact, think about this in your resurrection body. You will be so effective and so able that you will be unable to disobey him. Doesn't that sound like good news? That's what we desire as brothers and sisters in Christ, as his children. The final pair is natural and spiritual. Natural and spiritual. The current body is natural, Paul says. Not, again, physical in and of itself, but referring to an ordinary human body which is empowered and activated by one's own wills, will and desire. But we will be raised spiritual. This doesn't refer to a non-material body, but it refers to the empowerment and animation of the Holy Spirit in us. He will give life to our mortal bodies. And he already has in a limited sense. The resurrection body will be empowered by the Spirit in a way that we have not experienced yet. So the summary of this, and there's much more to this that I won't get into, but beginning there in verse 45, I think Paul's giving kind of a summary of this. From the image in, we, will, we are in the image and likeness of the first Adam, which is Adam who was created from the dust, and we are being transformed and will be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So who does this apply to? Who will receive this resurrection body? Not those who are of the dust like Adam, that was once all of us, but those who are of heaven like Christ. In other words, you must be born again. You were born once in the likeness of Adam and you must be born once again in the likeness of Christ. If you remain as Adam without being united to Christ and in Christ, then you will die just as you started. You were formed from the dust and to the dust you will return. And that will be it. Actually, it will be worse than that. You won't simply cease to exist. You will exist in a state of Rebellion against God from all eternity as his enemy. Filled with disappointment and regret and sorrow. Facing an eternal punishment from God in hell. But for those who are of Christ, for those who are of heaven like Christ, you will experience this resurrection body. It's all by the work of Christ. First, think about even his own body. How it was sown perishable he faced sufferings like we do only much worse he suffered decay as his body was beaten and broken and as he hung on the cross but he was raised imperishable his body was sown in dishonor wasn't it he was stripped and humiliated not only bearing the public shame of being crucified on a cross but bearing the shame of Of our sin. When he suffered under the wrath of God. He was sown in dishonor. But he was raised in glory. He was sown in weakness. But he was raised in power. 
It's reasonable to believe in the resurrection. It is glorious once we recognize its nature. And what each one of us who are in Christ will receive as a result of Christ and his work for us. But notice also its realization when this will take place, verses 50 to 58. When will it all happen? When will all this go down? Paul says we must be changed in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Not speaking merely of of flesh, but of speaking of the worldly way of doing things, the fleshly way of doing things. The perishable can't inherit the kingdom of God. It must be transformed. It must be changed. Paul says there's this mystery in verse 51. Not all will die, but all will be changed. He says in the twinkling of an eye, instantaneously, at the last trumpet. The last trumpet is at the end when Christ returns for his bride. There's a parallel passage to this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Look at that passage with me. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. There Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The dead will be raised And those who are left alive, those Christians, those who are found in Christ, only those who have repented of their sins, who have come to an end of themselves and said, the only way I'm going to be saved if it's because of Christ and his work for me. The only way I'm going to be saved if it is because of God's grace to me. Children, teenagers, have you done that? Have you turned from your, have you changed your mind about your own sin and recognized it and seen it for what it really is? That every offense you commit is is an offense, ultimately not against your parents, not against your friends or neighbors. It is an offense against the holy God of the universe. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Embrace Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And he promises that you will be saved. Only those who have done this will be changed, will be resurrected from the dead in glory. Because the victory is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a victory over death. It is a victory over sin. It is victory through the gospel. Now Paul's words here, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ is not just some phrase that we can use to perform well on the basketball court or in our jobs. It's not some phrase that we should use to to put on a happy face and just act like everything's okay. No, Christians will face difficult trials. We will suffer in this life. We should expect that. 
It's actually the hope which is to come, which is our victory. The resurrection body which is purchased by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he takes this, the gospel, the resurrection, and says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of this inheritance you have in Christ, in light of the victory that you have which will come and be fully realized when Jesus returns, in light of all this, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, In your faith, in your trust in this gospel, in your faith in Christ. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what is it that makes one's labor worthless? Vanity in this life. Simply put, it's labor that is not done in the Lord and for his glory. It's labor that is done with no faith in God, with no mind towards God, with no motivation or desire to give Him glory. If you're doing work in those ways, it will all be burned up and be worthless. All of it. But work that is done in faith in the Lord, this applies to your vocations in a broad sense. As you serve others in your job, as you serve your brothers and sisters and your neighbors in the work that you do on a regular basis, in your vocation as a mom or a dad or as a husband and wife, in your vocation as a neighbor, all of these labors, if they are done in the Lord, they are worth much for His glory. More narrowly, it's work in the Lord is focused in on work pertaining to giving witness to Christ in the gospel. Giving testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How are you doing your work? It applies to your physical work, but also kind of your spiritual labors. One of the biggest mass immigrations within the United States was in the 1840s and 50s during the California Gold Rush. And people came really also from all over the world to try to win the lottery of this gold rush, to try to get rich. Many of them did. Many of them struck gold and got rich and went on to live prosperous lives. But you know the story of the rest of them. Many of them didn't. And they just kept digging and digging and searching and searching and they spent all of their life, they spent all of their wealth, they lost family members, they lost loved ones, all in search for Gold, striking gold. And you may feel like this in some of your labors. You're, you're, you're chasing after this one thing that will make it all worth it. In your job, you're, you're looking for striking gold. You're, you're hoping that if you just keep doing uh, what you've been doing or you try some new things, well, eventually you're just going to strike gold and it's all gonna, that's going to make all your labors worth it. All those years that seem like vanity, all of it's going to come to fruition and you're, then you'll be happy. You'll find what you've been looking for. You may even feel this way in your spiritual endeavors, in your spiritual labor. Maybe you feel dull Lately, Maybe you feel like you're in a spiritual rut and and you're searching after that one gold nugget of hope. And if you could just find that, well, then you would know that all of the rest would just be worth it. It would be worth it. It wouldn't be vanity anymore. 
I couldn't help but think of this kind of in Steve's life as he's been laboring faithfully and, and working hard in those difficult fields in China. Even as a church, we faced it, our disappointments and difficulties along the road of trying to serve others in the gospel. And we may feel like, well, if we could just keep pressing on and find this one gold nugget, it'll make it all worth it. But in all of those things, brothers and sisters, I have good news for you. Our stories aren't like those because we have already struck gold in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we found him, or rather when he found us and saved us by his grace, we struck gold. All by grace we have been saved. And now we are not pursuing that which will make us filled with joy. We are pursuing not that which will fulfill us because we've already found that. Now in grateful joy we are seeking to serve and love him. Have you recognized the gold that you have found in Jesus Christ? In a very real sense there is no reason to keep searching for it. It's found in no other place than the person and the work of Jesus Christ for you. You can rest. In a real sense, you can rest from your labors. But you can also work hard. Because you know that any work that you do is not in vain. Any work you do in the Lord with faith in Him, with joy in Him, Trusting in Him to work, it is not in vain. You can be confident of that. Let us pray together.